Thank you, Claire, for reading that. Uh, good morning. My name is Barry. I'm uh, one of the um, pastors here. If you're new here, it's good to see you. Welcome to our church. We've been spending a little bit of time uh, in recent weeks, either side of Easter, on this second letter to the Corinthians written by Paul. We haven't actually gone through it sequentially, which feels a bit odd. For those of you who are old enough, it's the sort of treatment that Eric Morecambe gave Grieg's piano concerto. You know, we're, we're, we're playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. Um, and here we're back in chapter 2, which is a, uh, as you heard, a little snippet about a real-life situation. It's not really theologically sky-high, and it's not like Romans or Ephesians. This is a little bit of real life that's been going on in this church in Corinth. And I want to look at this subject of forgiveness, hopefully in that real-life sort of way, because traditional forgiveness talks, of which you may have heard one or two, tend to be quite abstract. Um, we have been given so much, forgiven so much by God that we really ought to forgive everybody else. And that is true. It's a good exhortational message. I agree with that. But it is quite abstracted from the grittiness of real life sometimes if it's not accompanied by other things. Um, do this because it is the expected Christian thing to do. You should do this. That is not untrue. I'm not going against that. It just isn't that easy, is it? Um, unless we face the, the difficulties of forgiveness honestly, we'll probably go out of those doors relatively unchanged um, because abstraction is not enough. Um, and I also want to look at the idea of forgiveness not just of individuals because maybe there's a list of people now playing in your mind, I don't know, um, but also the idea of forgiving a community or even a nation or a government, or anyone, or anything that you foster some kind of resentment or judgment against, including a church, um, you know, which um, this was, of course. Sweeping generalizations abound in these sort of subjects, and I'm going to use them quite a lot because there's not enough time to make all the exceptions. But the supreme irony of our lives, I think, is that we long for justice to be done, for things to be balanced out. Um, so long as it's not to us. Uh, at least that's true of me. Um, we long to be vindicated, but not so keen to be punished. And uh, it's worth bearing that in mind, I think, when we look at uh, forgiveness. We crave forgiveness, but we assert justice quite a lot in the way that we conduct our lives, albeit subconsciously. So the, the context here is a church, uh, a, a, a group of believers, a community into whom some conflict has come through the spreading of divisive teaching. So Paul's apostolic authority has been undermined, his personality attacked, his status as a, as a, a qualified teacher has been uh, attacked by people. He's been deeply hurt personally by that. But more than that, this community that he's birthed and given life to has been ripped asunder. So, so he's... He's got all sorts of reasons to hold a lot of uh, bitterness towards this unnamed individual that we, we read about. Um, and probably finding it quite difficult to forgive that. 
It's not just himself, but his life's work in this particular place where he spent quite a lot of time and other people being divided and hurt and set against each other and turned into the very opposite of what the gospel should be all about. So there's a, there's a kind of um, a contradiction going on. And um, there is one key phrase in that, um, in that passage that was read, uh, which is verse 11. He says, If there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. But Paul is saying that where this kind of thing is going on, be aware there's something else going on. It's not just the rights and wrongs of this particular situation, but there is someone trying to set you against each other. Now, just um, let's be uh, honest about this. Disagreements of that nature are not uncommon in communities that are or may be described as idealistic In other words, they're driven by an ideology, something a little bit um, challenging, uh, like a vision or a faith. So disagreements like this are not unusual in a church. The ideal, the doctrine, the dogma, the value can start to overshadow relationships. You know what I mean by that. Sometimes we start to relate to each other in the light of this big ideal up here that we've been taught. And inevitably people fall short of that. And your neighbor becomes your potential enemy because they're a source of failure or or some kind of falling short of this ideal. And unless there is a deep and overriding belief and practice of forgiveness and reconciliation, communities like that can't survive. They will sooner or later dissipate. One person will leave and then another person will leave, and then someone will say, well, two of my friends have just left, I'm going to leave. And um, they start to fall apart because there's no um, conscious reconciliation going on to um, overcome that. And that plays out very poignantly in the life of the individual. Um, People in whom you've invested great hopes let you down. Um, You discover you're not the... Um, centre of their life as you thought you were that people are not as they ought to be and actually in in our society we do live incredibly idealistically if you listen to the way a politician is interviewed on the radio they are held to incredibly high standards of perfection and it's quite refreshing sometimes when you hear an interview which isn't like that where people do connect and they talk about how life really is Um, Things like political correctness have taught us not to let insulting or debasing language go by unchallenged. And I agree with that. I think if you could transport yourself back to the 70s and see what our TV and radio was like, you'd be quite shocked. However, it has also heightened our consciousness of the right to feel hurt, to take offence. In other words, we're more aware of, I don't need to take that, do I? I don't need to accept that. I should challenge that. So there are two things going on there which, um, taken uh, collectively, we can take offence quite easily. There's an awful lot going on to hack us off, is what I'm trying to say. It's very, very easy, isn't it, to get browned off every single day uh, with someone every 
day of the, of the week. And if you throw into that our own insecurities, we're wounded, inadequate, sensitive, we're looking for affirmation and acceptance all the time, it doesn't actually send us, uh, take much to send us staggering off balance. And what that means is the values that, that subconsciously we extend out there that we ask our community to reach can be very, very high. And the great project, I think, of which we are a part is not to hold each other accountable for every fault, but to build each other up. And I just want to look at um, what Jesus and Paul, the Bible, say about that and present to you a few sort of... You remember those Love Is cartoons that used to bedeck people's exercise books and briefcases and things. Well, I want to sort of do a forgiveness is talk, um, four or five things that I think forgiveness is. First of all, I think forgiveness is a form of worship in itself. If you look at uh, the things that Jesus said, in Matthew 6 we have the Lord's Prayer, uh, where hallowed be your name is quickly followed by this paired verse, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. It's all in the same act of prayer. There's this centrality of forgiveness. And then at the end of that passage in Matthew 6, it says this in verse 14, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's got to be one of the most neglected verses in the Bible, I would think. Isn't it? It's quite central there, what Jesus puts that uh, concept of forgiveness. In Matthew 7, he says, take the plank out of your own eye before you judge the splinter in someone else's. Uh, I taught that in a school assembly once. They loved it. Just the picture of someone with a plank in their eye. I don't think we quite got beyond that concept, really, to what I was talking about. But the whole idea of it um, thrilled them. Easily pleased they are in Oakland's, I tell you. Um, in Matthew 18, you get the, 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 um, the story of the unmerciful servant, where one guy is forgiven thousands of lifetimes of debt. It's a ridiculous sum of money, and doesn't forgive somebody about three months' worth of debt. Um, you get, judge not lest you be judged, Jesus says again in Matthew 7. In Matthew 18, again, he says, forgive your brother 70 times 7. All in Matthew, all in this Jewish gospel where the community understood what forgiving of sins meant. It meant sacrifice and, and going to the temple and giving your offering. But hadn't yet grasped the idea of it being relational and central to worshipping God in itself. So much so that again in Matthew, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Forgiveness and worship for Jesus went hand in hand. Forgiveness is an act of worship. You can't obey the first great commandment without obeying the second. That's why they're linked. Jesus said the first great commandment is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is, Like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's like it. It's almost the same thing, Jesus says. So forgiveness is a form of worship. When you forgive, 
you glorify God. Every bit as much as anything you've done since you walked into this building this morning. It is part of your act of worship to God. And the opposite is also the opposite. There's a, there's a kind of a, a two-way thing going on here. Secondly, forgiveness is power. And back to that verse in, in 2 Corinthians where uh, Paul says, In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And Jesus says in John 20, If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I don't know what that verse means, except that it implies something very, very powerful about the forgiveness that we offer each other or deny each other. Something in the spiritual realm happens when we forgive or when we don't forgive. Something good or something bad. There is power in forgiveness and in unforgiveness, which we unleash when we exercise those things. Our actions and words set chain reactions in place, positive ones or negative ones. Things which I say and do affect this, which affect that, which affect this, which affect that, which work their way into other people's lives like yeast penetrating dough. And when Paul says we are not unaware of the devil's schemes, he's saying, devil, I know what you're up to and I'm not going to play along with it. I'm going to forgive this man. And I'm partly going to do it because I know what you're up to. So several things there. Forgiveness is a form of worship. Uh, Forgiveness is necessary in a very complex and ideals-driven world. And forgiveness is power. For good or for evil, we unleash spiritual power which changes lives when we forgive or don't forgive. So far, so good. So far, so abstract. I'm still living in the realms of theory, aren't I? How do we do it? Is anyone here able to put their hand up and say, it's easy, I don't have an issue with forgiveness? It's kind of a rhetorical question. I didn't expect anyone to put their hand up because everyone would look at them. But I doubt that anyone really wanted to put their hand up, really, because it's not easy, is it? Because of this interplay between justice and mercy that's going on inside, we think it's not right. I can't let that go. If I let that go, the universe will collapse. You know, that the space-time continuum will come to an end. This is how Hitler's Germany started, we say, you know, because people forgave things like that. I'm exaggerating, but inwardly we do make those kind of silly statements. So let's look at a few things that may help. Firstly, forgiveness is community. We do it jointly. Paul shares this issue in his letter. It's not something that he's fighting alone. Forgiveness is not privately held that successfully. It is better if it's shared. Obviously, a lot of what we uh, we, we have going on inside us is rightly, privately concealed. But there is power in sharing it with trusted individuals, people with whom you're in helpful relationship with, even though that makes us vulnerable. It's helpful to be heard, to let your plea for justice be heard by someone else, to hear their perspective on it. Let them affirm you in your hurt 
or to risk being corrected. You're being too harsh, you need to let that go. Hear that from someone else and it's easier to do. It can even be hurtful at first because you've got to let go of something that you're clinging onto. But it creates a safe haven for righteous anger, letting things out. That is why things like life groups, prayer partners, prayer triplets, great friends, trusted Christian listeners should have a role, need to play a role in our lives. And our um, community is the richer for that insofar as that is going on. You need someone you can share with. Secondly, forgiveness is process. One step at a time is the way to do this. If you are living in bitterness and hurt, and I say, just let it go, Jules, just let it go, all right? Just forgive. I've probably made it a lot worse now. Because you're thinking, he's not listening to me. No one's listening to me. I'm just getting more and more angry about this. I'm less able to forgive now than when I started. See, forgiveness is a journey that someone needs to accompany you with. It involves processing. It's a matter for thought and sincerity. If it's done dutifully, just because someone's told you to do it, you haven't really done it. It's still there. It's just been swept under the carpet or hidden under the bed where all manner of evils go. The notion of justice is still present and needs a voice. It is not automatic or mere duty. It's just pending. It's still there. Forgiveness sometimes requires anger, an outlet for inner feelings that are otherwise just going to fester. Anger is actually a biblical notion. It, it's, it just needs to be controlled. It's quite dangerous. It's quite addictive. But it's also quite necessary. You can't deny it. It will have its place somewhere in your psychology, either in the pressure cooker of repression and denial or outwardly to someone. And then it can be dealt with. But in community, in relationship. And that is a process. And that's why you need someone to help you. Thirdly, and this is the hard one, forgiveness is unconditional. Have minimum preconditions, if any, for forgiveness. And that is because we get two things mixed up. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. One is on the road to the other, but they are not the same. They get confused. The latter is always the goal. Reconciliation, Jesus says, be reconciled to your brother. But you don't go from square one on the snakes and ladders board to square a hundred, do you? You have to travel along a road, which is often difficult. Here a number of difficult things need to get considered. Firstly, God's forgiveness for us is unconditional. Um, you say, well, no, it's not. It's down to repentance. Well, not perfect repentance. I'm not even aware of half the things I do wrong. Very often I've offended God throughout the day and I've not even known I've done it. But I do know his forgiveness. I may have a heart of general repentance, but I'm not aware of everything I've done well or badly. And Jesus says... Or there is no hint in what Jesus says that you should love your enemy only when they've decided to be your friend. Jesus says, love your enemy. 
And if we forgive on the basis of repentance, sorry, and things being put right only, then our forgiveness is going to be withheld a lot of the time, and the damage that Paul is talking about will carry on being done. However, that doesn't mean to say that we can always be fully reconciled to all people and all situations immediately. The resumption of relationship in a broken world amidst brokenness and imperfection may not be immediately possible. It may not even be advisable. Putting yourself back into a relationship with someone who's probably going to hurt you again because you know it's just that kind of thing. It's just fallen world stuff. And I think God understands that. He simply asks you not to hold on to the bitterness. And I was hearing a talk the other day which put it like this, there is an eschatological dimension to this. Put simply, that means one day it will all be fine. Right now, it might not be. And that means that in, in that future dimension, when we are all restored to how we should be, then full reconciliation is possible. But for now, seek and give forgiveness. Move on, you may need to part company, but move on without that dreadful hold it has on you. Finally, forgiveness means cutting the world some slack, because Jesus did. It's a great book called Life Together, which Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the ideal of the Christian community. And he says this, if you love your dream of the community more than the community itself, you become a destroyer of it. What he's saying is, if you judge people, community, individuals, and and collectively, by perfect ideals, you end up destroying community because they cannot live up to it. And he even goes as far to say that there's a value in being initially disappointed with community because that means there's probably something that needs to be improved. And that's your job. That's all of our job. That's why we're here. To make things better than they are. So let me sum up. Forgiveness is something which is necessary all the time. There's a lot going on to hack us off. Every single day, something will happen. And it's not our job to hold every person and every body and every nation or every government or every church up to account. It's our job to build it up and make it better. Forgiveness is therefore needed all the time. Forgiveness is an act of worship to God. Forgiveness is power, spiritual power, released into the world. Forgiveness is community. It's best done, shared. Forgiveness is process. Be patient about it. Don't not do it just because you can't go the whole way. Forgiveness is unconditional, but reconciliation may not be possible in a fallen world. And finally, cut the world a bit of slack. It needs you to be at your best not at your worst, and try and make it better, not worse.